everybody. Thank you again for joining us today for another PR Masters podcast. I'm Art Stevens, your host, and it's my pleasure to bring to you the legends and leaders in the public relations industry. Today is number 56, and we have a very special guest for you. But before I introduce him, let me just say that our PR Masters podcast have been surprisingly candid during the course of its tenure during the past two to three years. They've shared their viewpoints, our PR masters have, and they have told us how to succeed in public relations and how to rise to the top, something that they have done. And I hope that by now all of you have learned something from these very talented people who have been our guests on the PR Masters podcast and that they've helped you in your careers, your agencies, your corporations, and wherever you work. I know they've certainly helped me. Today's guest is somebody that we've been trying to get for a while and he's been very busy but we're so delighted that he is with us today. He is Hanno Cabrera and he is Vice President Chief Communications Officer of General Mills. Now Hanno is a triathlete in the world of communications. He's combining a senior background in politics, global consulting, and in-house corporate relations and he's held senior strategic and operational roles in both the private and public sectors. In fact, in 2018, he was named among the 10 most influential leaders in public relations today by PR Week in their annual power list. And prior to joining General Mills to serve as Chief Communications Officer, Hanno served as Senior Vice President of Corporate Relations for the McDonald's Corporation, where he led global media relations, financial communications, brand reputation, consumer engagement, and internal communications for the ninth most globally recognized brand, and I'm sure he had a great deal to do with that. Prior to that, Hanno served as worldwide vice president of Burson Cone Wolf, the third largest global strategic communications firm. And before, before turning to corporate consulting, Hanno volunteered to travel to Baghdad, Iraq in 2005 to serve as the National Democratic Institute advisor to the Transitional National Assembly as they developed their constitution and later as an election observer during their historic elections. Wow, what a career. Hanno has spent actually a decade working in politics. He headed communications for various presidential campaigns, worked in the Clinton White House, and started his political career as a legislative aide on Capitol Hill and a federal budget analyst at a Washington, D.C. think tank. Well, it's truly my pleasure to welcome Hanno Cabrera of General Mills to our PR Masters podcast. Hanno, hello to you, and thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm doing well today. A anytime I hear my career described back like that, I'm reminded of the words my mother once said to me, which were, um, gosh, can you just hold down a job for one second? <laughs> well, on the other hand, you have had an extraordinary career. So whatever jobs you've had, you've obviously risen to the occasion, I must say. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, welcome. Welcome to PR Masters. And, you know, you've had, obviously, a varied career and an illustrious career at that. You've had a great deal of corporate experience, so let's let's start with that. Why don't you tell us about how your responsibilities have changed since you started in the in the corporate world, and how has General Mills itself evolved uh, in terms of its branding and corporate communications once you've joined it? 
Yeah, sure. So I, I'll start with, with the former. Um, I remember early on in my career feeling that there was a rhythm to communications um, because I started my career in politics. I would wake up pretty early to um, look at the news of the day, understand what the landscape was, and really worry mostly about the evening news. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this was back in the days in which we would fax clip packets to journalists. Um, I'd say the world has changed, and I think one of the things that uh, I, I enjoy is um, as that landscape evolves, it pushes us to adopt a learning mindset, to always embrace, well, what's new? Uh, how, how have we gone from um, a media culture of a few outlets that really matter, whose coverage would ripple across the landscape, and there was a natural tick-tock to that, to there now being creators and influencers all across that landscape, and it's infinitely more complex. Now, if your passion is communications, that means it's also infinitely more rewarding, uh, and it is how I see it. Uh, as to the second question, how has General Mills evolved since I've gotten there, um, I guess first I would say, uh, you know, I got to General Mills and then the global pandemic hit, so please know that that is by sheer coincidence. Uh, <laughs> secondly, um, I think anytime a CCO arrives at a company, uh, two things happen at once. The team that's there intuitively knows, well, this person's going to come with a point of view, and chances are we're going to change how we do things. And on the other part of that equation, that's true. The, the, the CCO typically is brought in with a mission from the CEO, from other senior leaders. They understand what was before, and there's an aspiration of what can be. Um, my, my view at, at General Mills was, uh, having consulted and advised many CCOs, was uh, I don't want to move too quickly. I want to understand what we have. I want to balance that against the aspiration that we have as a company. And then and only then, um, let's, let's change. Um, I, I would say that what has changed under me is uh, I've never been afraid to restructure a team so that it's fit for purpose. And if you think about the landscape of today, uh, we are, as an industry, more sought after, more valued, more listened to than ever before. And a large part of that has to do with this unique moment in history that we find ourselves in. A lot of it is about communicating internally, communicating to employees, informing them, inspiring them. So at General Mills, one of the things that I've done is um, just declared that across the entirety of the function, uh, there is now support for internal communications, because the reality is, uh, metaphorically speaking, we are on war footing, and we need more support there than in other places. Um, do I think that's going to continue to be the case once we're outside of the pandemic? Um, I, I don't. Um, but again, if you want to embrace a function being fit for purpose, um, you have to have that flexibility in unusual times, and the willingness to change it once you're out of those times which I hope is going to be sooner rather than later. Do you feel that a lot of corporations, Fortune 500 companies, are, are not paying as much attention to internal communications as perhaps they do to outside communications? 
Uh, I, I guess I would answer that by, by looking at it um, pre-pandemic and pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I would say internal communications was the redheaded stepchild of communications. And what I mean by that, and I say that with love and admiration for internal communications, if you look at how dollars are allocated in the corporate communications or corporate relations function, the, the bulk of it for companies that are consumer facing at least typically goes to that brand building muscle, which makes sense because you're trying to re reach a much wider audience. And if you're trying to reach a much wider audience, you can measure that budget in millions of dollars versus internal, which is much more discreet. I think in the pandemic, things have flipped. Um, CEOs are inviting in, elevating up, and really listening to CCOs and other communications counselors like never before because there really is a need and a desire to communicate more internally. Um, we have been in the pandemic for closer to two years than not, and the reality is that everybody is experiencing the long-term strain and stress of this time, and it requires constant communication and care. Um, and so as, as part of that, I, I think today, there is far more attention on internal communications by uh, corporations than there ever has been. You know, it occurs to me, of course, Hanno, that uh, uh, General Mills, of course, is, is, is a well-known company, but I wonder if you could give us a thumbnail sketch of its of its history. How, how old is it? How many employees uh, does it have? I, I, obviously, it's global in nature, uh, and, and some of the better-known products, just to reorient our listeners, you know, with, uh, with who General Mills is. Yeah, sure. I guess I would start by saying that um, at General Mills, we know that our products are in 90% of U.S. households today. Wow. And as I become more more familiar with the portfolio, I am fully convinced that it's closer to 100%. It's just that people don't know that we make that too, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, things that we make that people naturally associate with General Mills, let's say it starts with cereals, um, especially since the company, which has been around for over 150 years, and not many companies stand the test of time like that. In fact, you can count on one hand uh, with a few fingers missing, the truly iconic American companies that are listed on the stock exchange that without fail have returned a dividend every year, and General Mills is one of them. But um, the products that we're probably associated with, uh, cereal, uh, because General Mills uh, was the first mover to say 100% whole wheat in uh, the cereal space. Um, uh, so we're the makers of uh, brands like Cheerios, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, um, the monster cereal around Halloween. Uh, but I think that's where the understanding of the portfolio begins. The, the reality is that there's more to it. Uh, we are also the makers of Nature Valley, Yoplait, um, Old El Paso, Hillsbury, uh, and surprises like uh, Annie's Organic, which is a, a big important space for the company. In fact, we are the second largest organic producer in the U.S. in large part because there's a real commitment there to that space. And then last but not least, like we, we pride ourselves on making food the world loves, food that families enjoy. And I think that family has now been redefined in today's age to include furry family members. 
Uh, and here, because I am bearded, I'm not referring to myself. I am referring to cats and dogs. We recently acquired Blue Buffalo, which mm. is um, <laughs> a premier uh, dog food uh, and cat food business, um, which is just grown by leaps and bounds. Yeah. So j- just to give our listeners a sense of the of the size, you know, of General Mills, given sure. its pervasiveness in our in our homes, what are what are its current annual uh, sales? Sure. Um, think of General Mills as um, any large global uh, American-based corporation. Uh, you can measure our sales in the billions. Um, and uh, like any large major American business, uh, while those sales exist across multiple markets, um, we are in LATAM, Asia, Europe, uh, the bulk of our revenue really comes from one market, and that is the U.S. Um, and that's true for a lot of uh, multinational companies. Uh, the aspiration for General Mills is to, over time, ensure that we're reaching uh, not just the consumers in the U.S., but growing globally as well. So, obviously, one of the um, uh, important roles of a uh, uh, global chief of uh, uh, communications uh, is working directly with the uh, CEO. You know, I know that uh, uh, many uh, corporate communications officers uh, uh, have various relationships with uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the head honcho whom they work with at, at their companies. Could you describe uh, what your relationship is with the CEO, uh, uh, how to, the extent to which you know he relies on you, and uh, and and what what he expects of you? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I'll begin by describing the relationship on my end, which is one of great admiration for Jeff Harmonine, who's the CEO of uh, General Mills today. Um, as I was thinking about. Um, where to go, I, I was interviewing with different companies, and once I met Jeff, uh, the, the decision was really made. He, over the course of my lifetime, I've, I've had the pleasure of really seeing up close a number of transformational CEOs in action. And upon meeting Jeff, somebody who cares deeply about the culture of General Mills, uh, and understands that it is through culture that we drive performance, uh, it, it was a natural pairing for me. Um, in terms of the chemistry that exists there between us, uh, you know, I look, it, it is, it has to be close. The, the nature of the CCO and the CEO is one where um, it, that relationship needs to be built on trust and understanding. I think when I came to General Mills, my focus was to ask, what is it that we've done before? Where are the third rails? And how quickly can I touch those third rails? <laughs> Because I do think that if you are a company that is in transformation, and according to McKinsey, eight out of 10 companies describe themselves in that state today. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that you have to some degree, to some degree, um, arrest business as usual and lean into change in ways in which you've not thought before. And that applies to the sphere of communication as well. Um, and uh, as Jeff and I, talked and got to know each other, one of the things that really struck me, especially in the interview process, is his desire to do things differently because he knew that there is such a thing as gesture politics. Uh, for the American market, like when 
ever since tea was thrown in a harbor, people have understood the importance of gesture politics. And speaking differently before the company uh, is something that any CEO can do to send a signal. Um, the example that I'll give briefly is when Satya Nadala took over for Microsoft, he spoke about the need for Microsoft to move away from being a devices and, and services business, which is to say, let's compete with Apple on making versions of their products, but just with the Windows stamp on it, to really being mobile and cloud first. And one of the first things that he did as CEO was to hold an event where he talked about Windows products now appearing on Apple products. Again, that's a great example of gesture politics from a CEO and why it matters that they take steps such as that. Wow. Um, so tell me about the, the, uh, the uh, obviously, the department you head at uh, General Mills. How is it? How is it divided? How is it organized? How many people work for you? Uh, do you have global uh, offices? Would you, would you go into that a little bit for us? Sure. Uh, the communications team at General Mills uh, is uh, 80 plus people strong. Uh, we are scattered uh, across the globe. Um, it consists in large part of three, I'm sorry, four big groups. Uh, first is consumer care, which is to say, if somebody uh, has a question, a concern, or a problem with one of our products, there's a team that's dedicated to hearing, responding, and solving. Uh, then there is uh, a team focused on internal communications, which consists of both the enterprise center and the business segments that make up, the many business segments that make up General Mills. Then we have our reputation team, uh, this corporate brand storytelling team specifically as it's known, which is focused on telling the holistic story of General Mills, which is to say <clears throat> it's not just about reputation, referring to corporations wearing their Sunday best, which is often code for sustainability. When we talk about reputation, we are talking about it in the many dimensions in which reputation is measured and weighted the financial performance of the company, the products and brands it produces, and the good that it does. Um, the uh, third piece is uh, our, um, I'm sorry, the fourth piece is our operation, uh, which helps the function in its entirety. So again, consumer care, uh, corporate brand storytelling, internal communication, and our mm -hmm. operation. So if if, uh, if your uh, unit within General Mills were to be a, a PR agency, you'd be among one of the larger ones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's true, but I would say well, this. Well, it perhaps, would have perhaps not as big as an Edelman or, or a Weber Shamwick, but, <laughs> but certainly, sure. certainly up there. <laughs> yeah. uh, you uh, know, I, I've had the opportunity to work uh, really in agency and in-house, and this is without any doubt one of the scrappiest teams I have ever worked with. I do not tell them that enough. I should tell them that, but I mean, really, it, it is a great and passionate team. Well, you can tell that to them as you are on PR Masters podcast today. Hopefully they will hear you say that 
that's when, when this is broadcast publicly. Uh, so I want to turn to an, another subject, uh, uh, Hanno, because you have such varied experience. Uh, uh, the, you've done governmental work. You've, you've done d- diplomacy. You've been on uh, leading uh, figure in, in, in top agencies. Um, I want to go back to, to Baghdad in 2005. Uh, how did that uh, come about? Uh, that you uh, uh, were selected or volunteered to serve as, as, as an advisor to the Transitional National Assembly uh, in uh, Iraq. Could you tell us about that experience? Uh, sure. Um, my, my politics are known. It's, it's on my LinkedIn. I, when, when I say that I started my career in politics uh, by nature, that means people have to wonder, were you on the left or on the right? Were you a D or an R? Uh, for full disclosure, because I think it's relevant for this for this question, uh, I'm on the D side, and um, what that means is um, I I did not support the Iraq War, um, but I also come from a military family. My father served, my uncle served. Um, I was an ROTC in college. I thought about service for myself. Um, while I didn't support the war, I I do feel. That I did feel that we had an obligation once we were in to do what we could uh, to leave that place a better place. Um, the way um, the United States helps build civic institutions abroad is through a funding me- a funder called USAID. Uh, they distribute funds in a variety of ways, but one of the ways in which they do that is by giving funding to NDI and IRI. They correspond with the two-party system. Uh, understandably, in 2005, um, because it was such a partisan issue, IRI had no problem finding Republicans who wanted to go to Iraq and help set up civic institutions abroad. NDI was struggling. And so for months, I would get calls asking me, can you recommend somebody? We want somebody to go to Iraq on behalf of the party. Any thoughts, recommendations? And I would provide names of people who I thought would, would do a great job. And ultimately, they came back and said, um, what about you? Like, the campaign is over. Your guy didn't win. Would, would you be willing to go to Iraq um, for a month? And I agreed. Um, again, out of that sense of obligation, and uh, one month turned to three, and three turned to six. And, mm. um, yeah, I was there for half a year. Well, and do you feel that your work there was... Uh uh rewarding to you given you know the nature of the uh, uh of the country itself and the situation uh, that uh, i guess uh, that that it was left in following the war um it's it, it, here's how i describe my time there i um i arrived in baghdad at a time in which i knew that my career in politics had to come to an end in large part because as much as I loved it, I wasn't sure what I could do next that wouldn't be to some degree a rinse and repeat version of what I had already done. And I wanted to try something. Once I got to Iraq and I saw just what people were willing to do to vote, like literally put their lives on the line, wait in line, thinking there could be a bomber who could wipe me or people standing next to me out, but there were lines all across the city as people voted. It, it was incredibly inspirational to me. 
and part of me thought, um, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll jump back in the political arena one more time. Ultimately, I decided not to do that in large part again because, you know, I'm, I'm craving the new and the different. I'm, I'm interested in learning, and that's motivating to me more than anything else. And um, that's why that's how I started my career in corporate consulting. I wanted to for there to be a red thread connective tissue between what I had done in politics and what I would do next. Um, but uh, I, I think the lesson that I got out of Iraq was I can express my passion for politics in different ways. And um, uh, to this day, I'm still politically involved. I still politically give. Um, but uh, it, it is at arm's length and with a far better degree of sleep than I achieved when I was working with <laughs> Yeah, yeah. How did you get into uh, politics? So was that one of your earlier uh, jobs uh, in life? Uh, you spent 10 years uh, in politics. You were at the uh, Clinton White House. Uh, uh, you were a federal budget analyst. Uh, how, did, how did you get to be a federal budget analyst, given, uh, I guess, the, you know, your subsequent uh, uh, career uh, path in, in the world of communications? How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, um, I think in life there are times in which you meet someone, you try something, you travel somewhere, and it just kind of clicks, and you know that it's for you. Um, uh, growing up the way that I did, which is to say, once you dig past um, the poverty line and you hit harder strata, that's where I was. Um, I missed a junior high school trip to the nation's capital, in large part because of health. And mm. I always thought about it. And so in college, um, my semester abroad, uh, I decided I need to check this box for no other reason than mental sanity so I can stop thinking about what, what could have been. Um, when I went to Washington, D.C., it just, I came back, switched my career from I was an English major to a political major, which required from that point on taking nothing but political courses and getting special permission to do that, um, <clears throat> which I did. Um, 48 hours after graduating from uh, undergrad, I went to Washington, D.C. Um, my, my zeal for it was, was so strong that I went there without an apartment or a plan on where to stay. <laughs> Uh, I figured it out eventually. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't add that my career in politics, I think, and this is true for a lot of people, uh, I would say politics is a meritocracy to uh, a degree. If you work hard and you're smart and you're willing to put in the hours, like people will notice and you will be rewarded. But that's balanced against the fact that it's it's, there's a great degree of luck in breaking into what is pretty rarefied error. Uh, I will forever be grateful to somebody who remains a mystery to me. Uh, when I was a press secretary on Capitol Hill, um, at the time, there was a great debate on Social Security and save it. The administration was putting forward plans. Um, because of my time at, at a think tank previously, I actually enjoyed explaining the nuances to journalists who, in fairness, like if you're a journalist, you have to become an expert on topics practically overnight. Um, one of those journalists 
said to the White House, because they knew they were looking, we know that you're looking to hire somebody for Vice President Al Gore's comms team. We recommend hmm. this guy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll never forget receiving a call asking if I was interested in interviewing with uh, Al Gore, and um, part of me thought it was a joke. And uh, I asked my roommates if it was if it was a joke on their behalf. I suited up. I went to the White House. I punched in a code, which is what you had to do at that time. And when the gate opened, like the thought really hit me, like this is real. And I'm not really prepared for this interview. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I it, I um, it set me on a course that was incredibly rewarding for for a decade. Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. So then you uh, you became, and I'm sure it was a, a very quick move up the ladder. You became worldwide vice president of Burson Cohn and Wolf, the third largest global strategic communications firm in the world. How was life there? You know, obviously you had a fast rise over there. Can you tell us about life at uh, Burson? Uh, sure. I, look, I think this applies to a lot of agencies: um, Edelman, Burson, Brunswick, you name it. But um, one of the things that I loved about agency life is it reminded me most of the kind of cross-pollination uh, that occurs in the hallways of college, where there's the formal learning and then there's the informal learning that occurs as you talk to just a, a variety of people with just different experiences, each of them with their own expertise and passion. And... Um, a person, I, th I think one of the reasons I stayed for nearly a decade was um, w was because of that. And um, I I love communication. I love this. And um, one of the things that I think an agency provides, if that's a passion for you, a true passion for you, is that you can and should dabble in all the many facets of communication. I started off uh, as a member of the Issues and Crisis team and eventually led that, uh, I could have stayed uh, in that role and position. Um, certainly, Burson is known for crisis. It's uh, practically synonymous with the Tylenol recall. Um, but again, there are just so many facets to communications. Forever grateful that the agency allowed me to dabble in so many other areas, which I, I think is responsible for what I consider a pretty robust uh, set of tools in my tool chest when it comes to um, communication. So how do you compare agency life with corporate life now that you've had, obviously, a good deal of experience in each? Yeah. Um, I <laughs> I used to joke that um, uh, the, the difference is that you just have more time to think. Uh, I think when you're in-house, uh, the the, the pace is much slower. You're, you're able to actually give some thought uh, to the strategy that you have to employ and embrace the iterative process. Um, the downside uh, is that you're just not exposed to as many things as you are um, when you're at agency. Uh, one of the things I look for in agency partners is help me, help me learn help me continue to learn, help me understand what other clients that you serve are doing, even if you feel that they're not really in our space. Uh, I actually think that there are a lot of lessons that we're applying today that actually come from the tech space, 
and even the bottom out of space. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, sorry, uh, Art just returns to the question at hand. I, th I think a large part of the difference is um, just the, the pace that exists uh, fly inside just allows for people. Well, at least you don't have to fill out timesheets now, do you? <laughs> you know, I definitely do not, and I I don't miss that aspect of, of agency life. But uh, I, I I consider that a given. No one likes timesheets, whether you're a lawyer or a communications guy. Yeah, yeah. So well, I guess you like no, them if you're a timesheets company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, so getting back to, you know, how the world has changed, you know, in connection with diversity and the pandemic, to what extent uh, is General Mills in the forefront, for example, of uh, diversity, you know, within the organization? And, and what role are you playing in that? Yeah, I, I think when we talk about how the world changed in 2020, I hope that for many people that is a shorthand for more than the pandemic. Um, I think the year 2020 also marked a moment in time in which... Um, Globally, I would say, we um, started to have a long overdue conversation on systemic racism. And the tragedy that allowed us to have that conversation um, occurred in Minneapolis, which is um, where um, General Mills is based. And I think that there was a special onus placed on the company on what, how we would react, how quickly we respond and, uh, you know, I, I feel that I came to the company, uh, helped them develop their corporate narrative, which was incredibly time-intensive, turned to helping them respond to the pandemic, and then turned to this topic. And um, I, none of this was easy, but it was made easier by a company that I truly admire. I think the culture at General Mills has always been one of diversity and inclusion. Uh, in fact, um, the largest MLK breakfast that's held in the country outside of Atlanta is held, of all places, in Minneapolis. And it was founded by um, an executive at General Mills, and we continue to be uh, a key sponsor of that event. And um, uh, look, I, I think one of the ways in which people responded was just authentically and from the heart. And so our CEO at the time, which this occurred shortly thereafter, we were reporting earnings, and one of the first things he said was simply the phrase "Black Lives Matter." Um, I <laughs> I do think that wasn't a phrase that was popularly used in the hallways of corporate America. It is now. Um, uh, I think one of the ways in which we have continued to um, make a difference in this space is that we have a series called Courageous Conversations where um, employees can, should, and are encouraged to speak on topics that are sensitive, including topics of race, inclusion, diversity. Um, and uh, having watched some of these being new to the company, I really am struck by how authentic they are. Uh, and how much of a safe space the company has made these. You know, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, so with the advent of social media and technology and, and, you know, and other, you know, media opportunities, some good, some bad, uh, perhaps, but it's probably changed the way in which 
you know, corporations need to respond, you know, to Twitters and other <laughs> expressions of interest on the part of people out there. How have you prepared for that, and what are you doing, you know, to keep ahead of of, of the technology uh, capabilities of uh, obviously of many untold millions around the world? Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with what we're doing, and then I'll quote a poet. Um, in terms of what we're doing today, I would say it's it's table stakes. It's what every corporation should do, which is to say we're monitoring the conversation around the parent company and the brands that are part of the parent company. So if something begins to spike, say, around Cheerios, and it's a good thing, great. We should, we should know that. Conversely, if it's less than ideal, we should be aware and we should quickly have a process in place to understand why it's spiking and how we Again, I, I think that is table stakes. Every corporation to, today should have that as part of their function. Um, but to quote the poet that I reference, uh, the great American poet, Denzel Washington, the game is chess, not checkers, and one of the things that we need to think about is how we think ahead to the next series of platforms that will inevitably be developed and which will, if you consider the course of communications, be even more complicated and less centralized than they are today. Um, I think what that means for communications functions is uh, today, data and analytics is a small portion of uh, corporate communication schemes. I think increasingly will have to grow in size and importance. I think the art of communications has always been a combination of art and science. Uh, in the days ahead, it will probably be more science with a hefty dose of art that will never go away. Um, but it will require the development of new skills and understanding that um, will have to come with this next generation, which is all a long way of saying I feel like I'm leading at the perfect time. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to learn all that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Hanno, I've got a few a few more questions, and uh, then I will let you get back to your chores for the day. Sure. And this is in the category of of, of advice. You know, you obviously have worn many hats uh, during the course of your uh, illustrious uh, career corporate side, government, agency, even as an advisor to a transitional government. Gosh, not too many people have all of those kinds of experiences and during the course of their career. So what would your advice be to the young people today who are considering public relations as a career? What advice would you give them in terms of uh, climbing the ladder, whether it's corporate ladder or agency ladder or governmental ladder or nonprofit, whatever that ladder leads to? What advice would you give people joining forces with us currently? Sure. Um, the first thing I would say is um, be ready for this not to be for you. Um, because if it's if what we're talking about young people, there was a moment in time in which um, I thought I passionately wanted to be a doctor, and I still remember the moment when I was in AP chemistry, diligently taking notes, and then at one point the thought hit me like just out of the blue and with absolute clarity, I don't care about this. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And that's okay, because over the course of time, uh, we refine. We figure out what makes sense for us. But if you do find that communications broadly is a passion for you, um, my advice to you would be 
really based on cookies, which is, you know, try one, but, but the world is going to be better if you try several. Uh, understand that there's variety in the ways in which you can apply that skill set. Um, of course, I offer that advice because uh, that is the way in which I see the world. I applied it in communications and consulting and in-house. I find that combination incredibly rewarding. I would like to think that my next chapter might be teaching. Um, and just embrace uh, variety in communications as much as, much as possible because um, uh, the last thing I'll say on, on this is um, economists have a law referred to as the law of diminishing returns. And uh, if you find yourself losing interest in communications in one facet, just know that it might be rekindled by uh, exploring another area. So I have one final question for you, and that is sure. about yourself outside of the workday. What are your interests? Uh, what are your hobbies? What do you do when you're not when you're not working 24/7? If there are any other hours left in the day for General Mills, what do you like to do with your life? Sure. Well, first, if any of my uh, colleagues are listening, I don't do anything. I just focus on General Mills. Uh, <laughs> but truly. Um, uh, I, I enjoy um, running. I need to run. I need to walk. I need to exercise in between meetings. Uh, otherwise, become incredibly grouchy. I'm not able to focus. Uh, it is something that I've learned about myself over time. It's also resulted in me being much healthier today than I ever have been. Um, outside of that, I would say I'm an avid reader. Um, I read books um, voraciously, I would say. And I think sometimes when people say that, that's code for, I read fancy stuff that's just in the New York Times recommended section. Nope, <laughs> that's not me. I Well, I do, but that is not exclusively what I read. Uh, I enjoy fiction, nonfiction, historical fiction, um, just the gamut. Uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite books is The Time Traveler's Wife, and I, I think that um, cuts against the grain in terms of uh, typically how people uh, answer this question. Uh, the last thing I would say is um, I'm at, at, at this age um, the father of a two-year-old. And uh, well, that's I, more than a hobby, isn't it? <laughs> it's not a hobby, but boy, here's the joy of this time. I am doing this call from home. I do work most days from home. And there is nothing better than running downstairs, uh, seeing my son, and asking, do you want to play hide-and-seek? Or do you want to play tag? <laughs> Even if he doesn't, just like picking him up. It, it, is, it is, without any doubt, the blessing. Well, give, give your son a big hug from all of us uh, from PR Masters uh, Podcast. Thank you, Art. Yeah. Hanno Cabrera. Thank you so much for joining us today. On behalf of our PR Masters podcast listeners, uh, thank you for your insights, your advice, your candor, your directness, and your eloquence, and the role you play in our beloved public relations industry. You are indeed a PR master, and thank you so much for being with us today. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. I hope you have learned a great deal from our esteemed PR master. And as always, I am Art Stevens, your host, and I'm managing partner of the Stevens Group. And we are 
in the process of signing off. So see you soon with the next PR Masters podcast. Enjoy your careers. Public relations is a wonderful profession, and I wish you all a great day, and take care, everybody. Bye-bye.